So while uh, people are sitting, settling down, let me, uh, let me then begin this very, very last uh, session of this exciting conference. It's the uh, closing panel. Um, and we have a really outstanding uh, set of panelists, uh, very diverse. Um, your uh, folder contains the bios of each of the panelists, um, and many of them have already been introduced to you, so I will not read out everybody's bios in full, but let me just uh, uh, introduce you the name and designation of each of the panelists going from right to left. Um, and so let me start out with uh, Ken Kassman, uh, my colleague Ken Kassman, uh, who is the Robert B. Dougherty Professor of Agronomy here at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln, and he's also the chair of the Independent Science and Partnership Council of the Consultative Group on International Agricultural Research. Uh, to his left is uh, Suat Irmak, uh, who is Interim Director of the Nebraska Water Center, which is part of the Robert Dougherty Water for Food Institute here at the University of Nebraska, and he's also a professor of biological systems engineering at UNL. To his left in the middle is uh, Simi Kamal, who is the chairperson and the chief executive officer of the Hisar Foundation uh, in Karachi, uh, Pakistan. To her left is uh, Keith Olson, who is a producer uh, in Nebraska. Um, and the former president of the Nebraska Farm Bureau, retired. Um, and to his left is uh, uh, Dr. Prem Paul, who is the vice chancellor for research and economic development at UNL, and of course the powerhouse behind all these uh, water for food conferences. Um, so we've got a really great panel, um, and uh, I'd like to suggest that we begin uh, with some uh, comments from the panel and uh, maybe a question or so from me uh, to each of the panelists and then have an interaction with the, with the audience. So if that's okay with you, uh, that's what we would do. We have until 2.45, so we have slightly more than an hour. Um, let me then begin with just uh, one question that I would to all the panelists, um, and, uh, and I would suggest that we start with Ken and, and go down the, the, the line, as it were. Um, and that is to, if I could ask each of the panelists to give us uh, your thoughts about the conference, the most interesting suggestions, ideas that came out of it, uh, some of your take-home messages from uh, one or more of the sessions, um, any thoughts that you had on the uh, main theme on uh, blue water uh, and green water? And of course, any ideas that you had for our institutes uh, from a very parochial point of view, I'd love that as well. So let me uh, uh, suggest, uh, Ken, that you lead off. And I, I, would, I would think uh, three to five minutes each would be about right. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. And it really was a pleasure to be part of, of this fourth uh, water for Food uh, conference. So I'll make two points. Uh, and they were, there are things that struck me during the course of, of the meeting. And the first is, in, in my role in the ISPC chair, I, I really do get a chance to see the flavor of, of sentiment globally about the challenge of, of uh, food, producing food to meet future demand. 
And I want to tell you, and, and so what came out here at our meeting today is, is something that's very new on the radar screen about the context of the challenge. And this has to do with um, the potential for reducing the magnitude of, of food production increase that's going to be needed by 2050 that can be taken care of by reducing waste or changing diets. And two years ago, this was not large on the radar screen, and especially among donors. And now it is. And the, the points I want to make are, are, are the following. First, that um, we, we heard uh, Malin Falkenmark talk, um, at least last night I heard her talk, but the importance of backcasting as a tool for strategic planning um, and prioritizing of research, and, and so for an institute like WFI, critical. That backcasting, the, the magnitude of increase in food supply, so backcasting from 2050 to today, how much food is going to be needed in terms of the increase, the magnitude of increase. And that's critical. Uh, you've heard numbers, the, the FAO recently published a 70% figure. But at this conference, we heard that if you reduce waste, hypothetically, it could be 50%. And then if you had change in diets, maybe it's down to 30%. Well, let me tell you that if it's 30%, 50%, or 70%, those are massive differences when it comes to how you would prioritize research and what you would choose to invest on. So getting that right becomes crucial, not only for us, but globally, for the global community of, of research scientists. And we heard Victor Sodras talk about how important it is to see clearly and prioritize research, particularly in the biophysics of our systems, because there's so many things we could do, but we, we, we all must focus because we never have enough uh, resources. And we heard Claudia Garcia talk about the urgency. So it's not as if we can dilly-dally to get the answer. It, we actually need these answers and to have research programs in place in the next five to 10 years if we hope to turn the tide of population growth um, poverty and malnutrition. So I want to, my take on it is we need to be cautious. Um, uh, is it likely that we're going to reduce waste? We certainly can't reduce it to zero. The hypothetical case we had at lunch yesterday was reduced to zero. But if you think about it, in developing countries, the very things that help us reduce waste are the things that have been so hard to do in developing countries. It takes roads, infrastructure, connections to markets, energy, refrigeration. And it's likely that by the time we do those things as a tool to reduce waste, the income levels of the people we've helped in producing that infrastructure are so much higher that their per capita increase in food demand is so high that the net benefit from reduction in waste is almost, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a washout. But my point, I have no idea what the answer is, but we just need to think clearly. Likewise, change of diets. I can only give the example in my lifetime thinking about my parents uh, and all of the, uh, uh, the generation after World War II in developed countries. That's Europe, US, Canada, Japan. And that, my parents and all parents of that generation from World War II were deprived. They were deprived of food, they were deprived of recreation and so forth. And so they, in their lives, when they had children, wanted to provide their children with everything they were deprived of during their lifetimes. And so I think, contrary to this idea that we can have a different trajectory on, on the relationship between income and, and food consumption, I think we're going to overshoot it. 
That is, this next generation in China and India, as they increase their incomes, they're going to want to provide their children with everything they were deprived of, and it's only until the next generation that we have a chance to have an education that allows people to say, okay, maybe we reduce our consumption of the foods, livestock products, and so forth. So I think the danger is more that we undershoot our projections, and our, thus our research strategy and um, uh, policies, and thus food prices rise dramatically and um, with increased hunger, higher food prices, greater environmental degradation. I don't have the answers, but I think we need to be cautious about how we look at those two new um, issues on the radar screen. Second point I'd like to discuss is that um, the issue of, you always hear at this conference, you know, is irrigated agriculture sustainable? It's almost as if sustainable irrigated agriculture is an oxymoron. Just inherently so. Now in history, there's some evidence for this, of course. The uh, Tigris-Euphrates, the uh, Cedars of Lebanon, the, uh, many irrigated systems have uh, not proven to be durable. But yet, if you look at the future, there, there's no way we can meet food demand at whatever level you're projecting without irrigated agriculture a significant part of the equation. And so, irrigated agriculture must be sustainable. And when you go, and so there's an education process here because I, I submit to you, and maybe each of us do this as an experiment when we leave this conference, go on the street, if you're riding on, the, on, the, on a ta uh, bus to the plane or you're sitting next to someone on the plane, pop the question, well, do you think irrigated agriculture is sustainable? <laughs> well, my, my guess is they're gonna say no. And my guess is that the, the common person is, is uh, worldwide is going to say no. And you see, there's a disconnect then between an essential component of human survival, looking forward, irrigated agriculture, and the perception thereof in the general public. And if this isn't changed, there's a real danger. And so I think then bringing it back to your question, Roberto, obviously, uh, from my view, I think the World Water for Food Institute can play a remarkable role here in, in, in helping to benchmark the current performance, and I'm talking here environmental performance, I think is the major concern, of irrigated agriculture everywhere. So understanding how well is it performing, and then helping with the science and technology to make sure that every step we take forward from here only improves the environmental performance of agriculture. And so uh, that, that's a key role I would see for the Water for Food Institute. Thank you. Excellent. Uh Thanks so much, Ken. That was a great set of thoughts that I'm, I'm sure everybody is reflecting on as we speak. Let me pass it on then to my colleague, uh, Suat Iraq. You're next, Suat. Thank you, Roberto. Uh, I'm going to make two very brief comments uh, about my observations. Uh, the first one is I think we all agree that challenges are great, and, and there is no way that one uh, entity can achieve the success of addressing those water management issues or crop production issues for a growing population. It is very obvious from this conference that uh, I think there is a common interest by many different uh, disciplines, private industry, uh, universities, our institute, uh, to work together to a common goal of achieving uh, more productivity with less inputs uh, to close the gap of uh, demand for food and fiber production. So my, I want to emphasize uh, 
that uh, with you know what my observations from many other colleagues that uh, partnerships, strong partnerships with industry, universities, um, and uh, commodity boards, farmers, and crop consultants is the key to to, to achieve that, that success. Another point that I, I want to emphasize based on my observations is that the importance of education, and I want to include extension, education slash extension uh, role in, in meeting that, uh, that uh, or increasing the productivity of agricultural uh, activities. We can do, and we've seen great examples of scientific research, uh, but at the end of today, somebody has to take this and disseminate this information to the growers, crop consultants, and others on the ground to have an impact. So I think education and extension to disseminate and transfer scientifically and research-based information to the users on the ground is the key, and that will make a real impact on the ground. So I just wanted to emphasize those two uh, important points, and I know these are some of the core uh, missions of the Water for Food Institute, so thank you. Thank you. Let me, uh, let me thank uh, Suet for both his comments. That was very helpful, Suet. And let me ask Simi uh, to come next, Simi Kamal. Thank you very much, Roberto. It's a real honor for me to be back here. This is my third year here. And, and this year it was especially special because we talked in the context of green and blue water. And uh, Dr. Marlin Falkenmark is somebody whose writings I've grown up on, many of us have grown up on. So it was a great pleasure to meet her again. And uh, the way she put things into context, I think, has really helped pull this conference together. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh, the session we did on women, water, and food. And uh, I'd like to say that uh, we found much in common. Uh, there were similar attitudes and mindsets across, across all, all the different continents that we came together from, and the differences were in degrees. And we saw a common thread, and if I can uh, just quote my friend April Hemis, I don't know if she's here, she said, yes, that common thread was there. Now all we have to do is to pick it up and stitch it together. And I think that's really beautiful, and that tells us a lot of how we can work together. Uh, in, in terms of uh, women working largely with green water, uh, we know that all the challenges that have been discussed so far, they're all multiplied for women many times. And I think that's important to understand. Uh, it's important for this institute to work on building uh, women to be prominent in leadership positions in water and food sectors. We learned that from small beginnings, we can really lead to big movements and how we can build on social capital in our young women and how to build food security in an environment of political instability. Those are real issues, perhaps not in the, in, in the United States, but in many other parts of the world. Um, we saw that even being successful, women farmers, even they faced the glass ceiling, and that is present here as well. And uh, when we talk of environmental sustainability, and as my friend just said, you know, the whole idea of agricultural sustainability is difficult to understand, yet we need to balance production with environmental sustainability. And for that, we need to build on women's traditional farming and uh, livestock practices where the use of green water is really very prominent. Uh, we believe that institutional support mechanisms, like the ones we saw in Brazil, coupled with women in leadership and decision-making positions can really help to support agricultural advances 
right across the world. So we need to invest much more in women as drivers of agriculture and food production. And uh, we felt that, you know, domestic use and water for agriculture and, you know, irrigation farming and homestead farming has been separated for far too long and we need to bring it all together to meet the challenges of producing much more food for a burgeoning population. Uh, we also saw that when, when men undertake small-scale agriculture, especially in urban and rural contexts, even if it's just for food security, it's called high-value horticulture. When women do it, it's called kitchen gardening. You know, we have to come out of these terms if you want to make a big difference. So, uh, land ownership by women remains an issue, and water is a social and economic good. I think these are issues that were raised there. Now, moving further from there, what are some of the topics for further research that the University of Nebraska and the Institute can take up? And, you know, how we can inspire more girls to go into science and agriculture. I think that's something that came out very, very clearly, and uh, we need to address that. Now, moving away from that, just in terms of uh, learnings and observations from the whole conference, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about the three-legged stool uh, in which uh, University of Nebraska and uh, the Institute has a great advantage, research, education, and policy advice. I think we can already see a fourth leg emerging, and that is practice. And I think we need to pull that leg down really fast. And you know, once we, once we, once we can put the practices of what's happening into the other three, I think it will be a more potent mixture, and I think it will really help the Institute be become a totally world-class institution. Uh, just a, a few suggestions of what perhaps we could do next time. I think it would be really good if we have mixed panels next time. For example, when we, were, uh, we looked at the uh, industry representatives and they were talking of technology and investment, we needed to have people here who would talk about the effects of pricing and patents on a very large part of the globe. I think that discourse may be something we can pick up next time. And uh, um, as I said, this is uh, an institute growing really fast. And uh, I think that uh, perhaps there's enough confidence now to take this conference out of Nebraska. Maybe not next year, maybe a year or two. Let's take it to other parts of the world. I think that would really make it very interesting and its work even more important. In terms of reducing waste, I think we need to move another step further. Reduce consumption. We have to somehow work on in such a way so that eating less becomes more fashionable. I think we can do it. You know, just like smoking used to be really glamorous at one time, and now nobody wants to see anybody smoking. I think we have to move just consuming less. Otherwise, this population of youngsters connected on Facebook all want to have the same consumption patterns, and that cannot be sustained. So I think that's an area we need to do a lot of critical thinking. I'll stop there. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Simi. I think you've been provocative and uh, given us a lot to think about. Um, and also, let me just express my appreciation not only for your leadership of the uh, panel on women, water, and food yesterday, but your leadership in putting that on the agenda um, and, uh, and insisting that that should be an important part of the conference. So thanks again. Um, let me now um, ask uh, Keith uh, Olson to share some thoughts with us. Keith, over to you. Oh, well, thank you, and it is a pleasure to be here. Again, I've been here for all four conferences, and I go home very excited. My home is 300 miles straight west of Lincoln, right next to Colorado border. 
and I drive home, I'll be driving home tonight, and uh, I'll be excited, because I think we've had a tremendous conference again, and I've got a lot of thoughts. I can't share them all, because we don't have time. But we started out on Wednesday morning with uh, two quotes that, that got my attention. First one was by Roberto, talked about the groundwater precipitation relationship. He talked about some studies that have been done that showing as it rains, groundwater goes up. When it's dry, groundwater goes down. And we probably, perception-wise, we, we agree with that, we understand that, but to see it in writing, to see it, someone has studied that. I live in an area where they think we're pumping all the water out. Well, are we? Or is the water, really being, water level really being determined by the amount of precipitation we get? And right now, we have uh, seemed to be in a dry cycle. Um, had a couple of wet years, but we had a number of dry years. And if the cycles change to a dry year, what will that do to, to the future of, of agriculture in, in different parts of our, of our country, our state, and also around the world? Uh, then we had the concept that was new to me, been mentioned by a couple of the other panelists, uh, the blue-green water. And I've never thought about it in those terms. I appreciate that concept tremendously. I, some of those concepts that were brought up during that presentation, I thought about that on my farm, but different terms. But I like that idea of the blue-green water, and that's a concept that I'm going to share with my, my neighbors, my friends, uh, to see how, what does it mean to our operations. I would uh, listen to the you know, industry leaders panel, moderated by Jeff Rakes. It reminded me of when I was in India in the winter of 68, 69, spent about six months there on an exchange program visiting strictly farmers, lived with farmers in different parts of, this, of the country. Rake, or the Gates Foundation wasn't in India at that time. But the Ford Foundation was, the Rockefeller Foundation was. And what were some of the issues they were taking to, their, to the farmers in, the, in India at that time? Well, let's get a community tractor and farm all of our small plots. Let's start getting a little fertilizer. At that time, Mexican wheat was big in India, brought over by Mr. Borla. I didn't realize what was happening at that time when I was living it, and, and what had happened since that time because of people like Dr. Borlaug. And, and, and I just think that here we are today, we're talking about some of the same issues, the, Rakes, the Gates Foundation, led by Jeff Rakes, if the other companies going in there, and how do we help the small producer? How do we help the people in, in countries where they only may farm two or three hectare or less? A lot of it's still done by manual. Uh, progress has been made. I've seen it, but it, there's still progress to be made. And the one word that was said that I think uh, I'll remember, uh, take home with me, in the, in the um, producer panel, I think it was, um, no, it was in an industry panel. The term was farmers, producers have got to have choice. And I think back with a few years ago, I was in Vietnam visiting a farm family, farm couple, about 30 miles outside of Hanoi. 
And I asked one of our hosts that was leading us around, I said, has, has an American ever been on this, in this village, in this area, only 30 miles from Hanoi? And they said, Americans have been here, but never an American farmer. And this couple were so proud to show to me what they have done on their farm because they were given a choice. Up to about approximately, as the story was told to us, 86, I believe, the government told the small farmers, the ones that had one hectare, 2.5 acres, what you raised on your farm. And they were going broke. The young people didn't want to come back and stay on the farm. About around 86, the government said, we'll lease you the land, long-term lease, and you can raise what you want. And this couple, by hand, developed an orange orchard. And they were so proud to show the American farmer what they've done on their farm, because they were given a choice. That is my concern. Will I have the choice? Will my government, with our farm programs, or EPA, or whoever it may be, take away my choice to farm? Now, I realize I got responsibilities. I'm not saying to get rid of responsibilities. But are, are we going to lose our choice to farm to feed the, feed the world? And, uh, you know, this, these are questions that I have. I think about a lot. Uh, I know people talk about it here, but I think it's extremely important that, that we have the right, wherever we farm, whatever country we're in, and we're representing here, that the producers have a choice to do what is best for their land and what's best for them. Thank you. Well, thanks so much, Keith. As usual, very, very uh, wise words. And, and thanks also for um, the point that you made about the usefulness that you found of the green and blue water concept, because that's part of what we were hoping to achieve with this uh, choice of that topic. So thanks so much, uh, Keith. Um, Prem, uh, Paul, last but not least, uh, we would very much appreciate your reflections as uh, the person behind all these conferences and this one in particular. Prem. Uh, thank you, Roberto. And uh, uh, I'm really an oddball on this panel. Experts, practitioners, and here is a veterinarian. I guess I'm here uh, because uh, our office uh, facilitated these conferences, and I'm very proud of the team. But more importantly, I think what I'm really excited about is just look at the room. Third day, at the, almost at the end of the day, so many of you are still engaged. I think the, the strengths of the conference has been the community engagement community from Nebraska, practitioners, experts, community from around the world. So I think that that's where I think the Institute has made a lot of progress in reaching out. And so I want to say thanks to all the speakers who, uh, and all the advisors that have contributed to it. And I think that as we go forward, we need to build on that. Uh, the producers, practitioners, panels have been fantastic. I think not only uh, learning from uh, those of you who have traveled from other countries, 
but I think also that we can uh, share some of the best practices uh, uh, from Nebraska. What, what we like to see more is, uh, is that don't see as many young people, the future talent that is going to help us solve some of these challenges. So we need to make a concerted effort in getting more students involved um, and, and, and the, uh, uh, the researchers engaged to come to the meeting, share their experiences, and contribute to so building on, on what we've accomplished. Uh, collaborations uh, certainly has been a key, uh, and that needs to continue. So collaborations from the community, collaborations from our uh, partners, and, uh, and of course collaborations from those who have invested uh, resources into the, into the institute and conference. Uh, and lastly, uh, I have a challenge to all of us, especially uh, for, to my colleagues uh, at the University of Nebraska. I think we need, to, we need to think big. I believe in big vision and, and short list. But if we can create a big vision, then things do happen. And I think the yield gap atlas is a one such big vision. So my challenge to my colleagues, faculty colleagues, and is, is, to, as, is to think big, dream, and, and, let's, uh, uh, and let's make those uh, dreams uh, a reality. Uh, so I think the, uh, with that, Roberto, that I think that I would like to just say is the conference has been success. But as uh, Simi mentioned, that we do need to uh, take it on the road, so to speak, and not only share uh, with the majority of the participants from Nebraska, which we need to continue to do that, but also educate uh, around the world and then learn more from the best practices from other places. Well. Thank you so much, uh, Prem, and, and uh, thank you especially for uh, your urging us to think big. Um, and I think everybody in this room should know that it's because of Prem thinking big and having a big vision four years ago that we are where we are today, both in terms of the conference um, and in terms of the Water for Food Institute. So. Um, So thanks to you, Prem, and thanks to everyone who uh, commented just now in this first round. Let me now turn to more specific questions of, uh, that might vary from, from panelist to panelist. Um, and let me start again with, with Ken. And uh, Ken, you've been someone who has been pioneering the yield gap uh, uh, atlas, um, and it's one of the big ideas, as Prem talked about. Um, and yesterday we heard from the industry's uh, leaders panel about the importance of the yield gap analysis. Um, and it, I think it would be good if you could share your perspective with us on that, uh, on that question. Sure, it's a passion. Uh, I guess if you believe as I do, and as Claudia Garcia expressed when she was on the panel here yesterday, we're, we really are in a race against time. 
And I think the interesting thing is that humanity really doesn't realize it. We've had this incredible period of the past 40, 45 years where that, that was an unusual blip in all of human history, where food supply was greater than demand. And so just in that 40-year period, it was enough time to populate, well, for everyone that was being trained and educated to grow up in an environment where, when I was head of agronomy here at uh, Nebraska, we would strategize about how to add value to crops because there was too much. We had to find other uses for crops. Um, higher value chemicals, uh, biofuels was a part of that. And in just a short time, it's changed 180 degrees to where now food prices are rising globally. When you talk to ministers of agriculture in countries in South Asia or, or Sub-Saharan Africa, they are scared to death about rising food prices. It decreases disposable income that the population in their country can use to buy things that can then drive development in industries outside of agriculture. And food prices affect both urban and rural populations. So staying ahead of food prices, making sure, we're not saying going back to $2 corn. I want to make sure my, my corn growers here in Nebraska understand. We're not talking about going backwards. We're talking about preventing a catastrophe of runaway food prices. And so if you have that vision, and I think there's good biophysical evidence that that's true, and if you also would like to protect rainforests, wetlands, and grasslands from a massive expansion of agriculture because food prices get high, it sends global signals to farmers everywhere, we need more food, and the natural response is to expand. Well, we're all concerned about climate change, and one of the greatest sources of greenhouse gases is land use change. So holding agriculture on existing farmland is critical to any vision of a sustainable future. So if you follow that, there's a critical need in the next five years to know exactly how much food every hectare of existing farmland can produce, given its soil resource, given its climate, and given its current cropping system, because farmers are very, understand very well how to use their own labor, land, and time. And so the Yield Gap Atlas seeks to do that, Roberto, both for rain-fed and irrigated agriculture. This vision that will be publicly available, transparent, scientifically robust, reproducible, we've never had that. Pretty much when you look at the literature for assessing the ability of each hectare of land, we call it the yield gap, the gap between existing yields and the potential yield. Pretty much most of those studies are back-of-the-napkin estimates. And no wonder, there's been, we've come through 40 years when it wasn't that important to know how much food we could produce. So the point is we now need to know, and we need to know it quickly as a basis for, again, to inform policies, to inform and prioritize research, and for countries to chart their own course. We talked about some countries are going to need to be thinking about how can we supply to global markets because we have excess capacity. Some countries that have excess capacity today are rapidly going to become importers. And so the Global Yield Gap Atlas is a platform that provides publicly accessible data so that everyone in the world has a sense of, of carrying capacity of planet Earth. Thanks so much, uh, Ken. Um, and let me uh, 
switch gears a little bit um, with my question to Seward. Um, Seward, you were very uh, incisive in your comments in stressing the importance of education um, and extension, and, and you've been a pioneer in, uh, in promoting the idea of, of extension through your network with farmers here in Nebraska, um, and in connecting with practice, the point that, uh, that Simi was making. Um, and you're gonna be showing us a little bit of this in the tour tomorrow. Um, so this is, uh, I'm switching gears, because this in some ways is an advertisement for those who are going to go on the tour tomorrow. Would you give us a little bit of a preview of what uh, people will see tomorrow for sure. the uh, 100 or so lucky uh, conference attendees uh, who are registered to attend. Suet. Sure, thank you, Roberto. Uh, my colleague, Anne and I are going to be with our international and national visitors in the tour tomorrow morning. Um, our tour is gonna start at 8 a.m. and uh, our first stop is going to be one of the NRDs, Upper Big Blue NRD. If you remember from Vice Chancellor Green's map uh, during the lunchtime, it's the Upper Big, Blue, Upper Big Blue NRD is about 45, 50 miles uh, west of Lincoln in New York. So we are gonna visit their crop tip uh, demonstration project, which is uh, designed to showcase some of the water management tools and instruments and strategies uh, with the farmers on the ground and, and, and translate information to the farmers on best management practices for corn and soybean and other crops. Uh, it, is, it is one of the best demonstration projects and uh, I think Upper Big NRD has done a great job on that. UNL Extension has been instrumental uh, from uh, initial days of the crop tip project. Then we are going to move on to Central Plat NRD, uh, and, and manager uh, Ron Bishop is going to uh, tell us about some of the larger scale uh, water management projects, um, uh, some of the uh, conjunctive management uh, projects they are involved in. And we are going to move on to Nature Conservancy, and we are going to visit with uh, Dr. Jerry Kinney on. Plat River re Recovery uh, Implementation uh, Program, which is a good or great uh, project on ecosystem management, uh, natural system, um, habitat type uh, project, which is, which is great. Then we are going to turn back and come to go to Clay Center and visit one of the INR, UNL INR uh, uh, Agriculture Research Divisions, uh, research stations at Clay Center. Uh, which is the South Central Agriculture Laboratory. And in that location, we are going to see some of the uh, advanced irrigation and crop management and nitrogen management practices uh, using subsurface drip irrigation, uh, lateral move system, sprinkler irrigation, center pivots, and gravity irrigation. And we are going to talk about uh, some of the variable rate irrigation practices uh, some of the uh, research projects that have been going on for the last eight, nine years on how to improve productivity for a variety of uh, crops uh, with minimum input, both fertilizer, water, and, and other uh, inputs. We are going to see some projects on crop response to stress uh, in terms of productivity. Uh, 
And also we are going to see some of the advanced technologies on measurement of evapotranspiration and how that plays a critical role in our understanding and improving crop water productivity for any, any type of crops. Um, that's going to conclude our, our tour, then we are going to drive back to Lincoln. And we have ice cream at South Central Agriculture Laboratory too. So. Well, thanks very much, Suad. Um, maybe uh, instead of 100 now, after people heard you talk, uh, maybe we'll have 150 or 200, so better be prepared. But, uh, if I can mention one more, one more point. Is this on? Um, throughout the tour, I think we are going to emphasize and show some examples of the uh, network that uh, INR has created about eight, nine years ago a network of water management where we uh, brought uh, crop consultants, farmers, NRDs, almost all of them together with uh, commodity boards, corn board, uh, soybean board, wheat board, sorghum board, uh, and UNL, UNL uh, research and extension. <clears throat> where we worked together, which was the common theme of one of the presentations yesterday, we worked together to, for a common goal of improving productivity and also creating and establishing a balance between the environment and agricultural uses of water uh, in our state. So we are going to see some of the farmers on, on Saturday, and they are going to provide some, some uh, comments on how research-based or scientific-based information and data, uh, how, they are going to, how they are incorporating those data and knowledge into their management practices at the, at the farm level. So I think it's a good example of working together with state and, and federal agencies, university and farmers uh, to achieve the productivity uh, levels that we are trying to achieve. So, thank Thanks, Stuart, and it's a fantastic network and uh, I think uh, it'll be a great opportunity to see firsthand how the university connects with practice through this uh, on water management issues uh, through this network. So thanks again, Suat, um, and let me uh, then turn over to uh, to Simi, uh, Kamal. Simi, you were very uh, uh, helpful just now in uh, summarizing some of the main lessons that came out of the panel yesterday on women, water, uh, and food, and you've reflected on these issues very, very much. Just wondering, um, what would be your advice to the, uh, the new director of the Water for Food Institute in terms of how best to address those issues within the, uh, the program and strategy of the institute? Well, the new director is an old friend of many, many years and is very familiar with many of my thinking on, or parts of thinking on that issue. Uh, one of the ways I think that we could really get connected is with the women farmers of Nebraska. Um, April said in her discussion that whereas she herself has not had a problem working on groups where she's often the only woman in a leadership position, yet uh, when she meets with women, women want to discuss things on their own. They have some things that they feel they need to talk to each other about. So I think if the university and this institute could provide a platform for, uh, for farmers from this area, that would be a real great beginning. And then, you know, building on some of the programs to help uh, empower uh, women, develop the leadership that they can have from right across the world, to become leaders in the food sector. 
and to become leaders in the agricultural sector. But if you allow me, I have something I'd like to add to what Ken was saying. Mm -hmm. May I? You know, I, I, I fully concur with Ken that the time to act is now. We really can't afford to wait anymore. And uh, I think that uh, the, uh, you know, the, the paper that was uh, shared um, on, um, on the gap agricultural, what was the paper called? Sorry, I've just forgotten the term. The yield gap, exactly. The yield gap is a, is a great concept and I think that we really need to work hard on that. Alongside that, we also need to work on what I mentioned earlier about just learning to live with less water and less food. Uh, I, had a, I had a chance to uh, talk with the representative of Monsanto yesterday. And, you know, we were in a way even beginning to build bridges. You know, we've got to loosen their entrenched positions. You know, the, the international seed companies need to think beyond just the market as a redistributive force. And, you know, those who say that, you know, these, these companies are just charlatans, they need to also loosen their position. Because, you know, we have to work and find solutions together. That's going to be, to be hard because traditionally uh, they have not spoken to each other outside the developed countries. So I think that this institute could play a role in that, in providing that platform for cross-fertilization, because unless we work together, it's going to be really, really hard to meet these challenges in the next five years or six years, by which time we need to have a very clear blueprint in terms of how much food needs to be produced to feed everybody on the globe without having butter mountains and, and wine lakes as we had some decades ago. And, you know, in a situation where there's too much somewhere and there are other people who have nothing to eat. You know, the, the market is not the only redistributive mechanism and we need to find others. So focusing on food security, I think, will really help us grow out of that. And to what you said about choice, I fully agree. I think when farmers have choices, you know, even in the, in a, in the context of a very small farm, they can choose, for example, not to grow. And, you know, have livestock and sell milk or grow sunflower seeds, which they've never done before. So I think that's something we need to work on. Thank you. Thanks so much, uh, uh, <coughs> Simi. And let me now turn to uh, Keith. I remember, Keith, when we met in, uh, in May, uh, Keith was on my selection committee uh, uh, for the position of director. And so we had a chance to not only meet in the selection committee, but uh, over dinner that night. And you were mentioning at that time about some of the yield uh, improvements that you've seen, some of the changes uh, in your farm in, uh, in, in southwestern Nebraska. Um, and, and I gather you also shared some of those comments at a conference here three years ago. I think it might be good if you uh, shared with this uh, larger group today some of your, your thoughts on that matter and what you've seen from your personal experience in uh, some of those changes. Thank you. 1967, I graduated from the University of Nebraska College of Agriculture, and I went back to the family farm. I was going to do like my dad was doing. We raised wheat, years fallow, and wheat, so a crop every other year. And uh, uh, that worked good for them. They came through the Dust Bowl days of the 30s when many farmers went broke. Uh, the one that started to adapt new technology at that time, which was planting wheat instead of corn, uh, having a fallow year in there, they were the ones that survived. Well, that worked for about 10, 15 years, and then there was a guy, and I don't know if he's still here or not, Bob Klein. Are you still here, Bob? Bob Klein was a 
crop specialist, is a crop specialist for the University of Nebraska. And he said, uh, you know, out in southwest Nebraska, we got to start changing our crop rotation. We need to get away from wheat, fallow wheat. And he started convincing farmers to plant an echo corn, plant corn back into our wheat stubble the following spring. And uh, slowly we started adapting that. I'll fast forward. When I went back to the farm about 1980, when I started doing what uh, Bob Klein was pushing me to do, I was raising wheat, fallow wheat, and over an eight-year eight period, I'd have four crops of wheat. I'd produce about um, 140 units off of an acre. Eight years, 140 units, that's about 17 and a half units per year. A bushel to unit, um, it could be hectares, uh, be the same idea. Today, when my son came back to the operation about 10 years ago, he said, Dad, we're going to do things, continue to do them differently. And we continue to expand the no-till, so we're 100% no-till now. And on our farm, uh, we raised one year, in a four-year period, we raised uh, wheat one year, two years of corn, and then we come back, we're starting back with dry peas. And that, so in four years, we're raising four crops. And I figured that over an eight-year, two cycles, that we did that for two cycles. I've increased my production, that's what Ken's talking about, from 17 and a half units per year per acre to 56 units per year per acre. And why have I done that? Let me just... I, 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 laid out some of the reasons why we've been able to do that. And I think it can happen all across the world, because I've been on farms in Turkey and Russia where they very similar to the type of land I have, very similar rainfall, very similar soil. And I, I'd love to come over here and try. But I also learned from those people. It isn't a one way. Education is both ways. And that, that, that gets me excited when I get to have the opportunity to travel. But the number one, first thing we did, we crop rotation. Just a simple crop rotation increased my production. And biotech. We heard a session this morning about you know, biotech, emerging crop technologies, and uh, how important that is on my farm. Now, if you don't want to use biotech, you should have that choice. Absolutely. And some people can really make organic farming work. And, and uh, I, I salute them. But we need to have biotech. And my concern is that there's people in our country and around the world that want to eliminate biotech. And that, that bothers me. Because I think if we're going to feed the world, we need that, that tool. Seed improvement, just basic seed breeding. Uh, I've increased my wheat production because the seed that Steve Benzinger is developing here at the university is getting better. Um, and the other technology I think we sometimes forget is equipment technology. The header I used to combine my wheat came from England. Not made here in the United States. It is made in England. It's called a stripper head. It leaves all the straw out in the field. And, and uh, that straw is a very valuable resource. I just take the grain off. And it's, what that straw does and by being no-till, 
is it increased the organic matter in my soil. It has increased the water penetration in my soil. I have less water runoff. By being no-till, I no longer have dust storms on my farm. And that's so important that we figure out how to use technology from you know, biotech, equipment, whatever, to improve our soil, which will improve our crop production. Um, I guess, you know, I've already said, and I, I want to reemphasize the, the value of learning from one another. I learn from my neighbors, they learn from me. I learn from farmers in other parts of the, of the United States, they learn from me. And I learn from farmers from all throughout the world, and they've learned from me. And uh, by working together, we can do what Ken suggests. If, if, I hate to say it again, but I'll say it, if our government will let us. Because I think they could be a real impediment of being able to do what we need to do. Thanks so much, uh, Keith, and thanks especially for emphasizing the, uh, the two-way learning street, um, because in many ways that crystallizes what uh, this conference and what the, uh, the Institute is all about. We can learn from our neighbors, and our neighbors can learn from us. So thank you so much. Um, so Prem, uh, last but not least again, uh, you've been the driving force, as I mentioned earlier, uh, behind all these Water for Food conferences. Um, you urged us earlier to think big. Um, what would be some of your suggestions uh, for the future as we go forward with this conference uh, and beyond? Thank you, Roberto. Uh, I'm a research guy. That's what I know about. I know I dream and live research. And I think that clearly if the institute is going to be unique and going to make an impact, research has to be a very strong part of that, both the institute goals as well as the conference. New information that is created and then shared with masses, those who need it. Uh, so we need to make sure that the multidisciplinary approach not just in one or two areas, but you know, this particular institute is University of Nebraska system-wide. We have expertise at the University of Nebraska Omaha. We got my colleague here uh, from Omaha, University of Nebraska Medical Center, Public Health, uh, University of Nebraska Kearney, and uh, of course, University of Nebraska Lincoln. So that is one that we need to make sure that uh, we get uh, the, uh, the experts engaged uh, from uh, all the four campuses. The second part is that if we don't take research and use that research to come up with solutions to solve the problems of water very broadly, water for food, then shame on us. And I think that for us, for the University of Nebraska, for the University of Nebraska Lincoln, it's a golden opportunity, and the time is right. With the leadership of our university, with the leadership of our state, and the support of the state, we have created a Nebraska Innovation Campus. Right next to the university, we have created 250 acres land that was a state fair that is now being converted into or built into a Nebraska Innovation Campus. And that really is a playground for public sector, uh, private sector, all of us. 
the faculty, the companies, uh, uh, entrepreneurs uh, uh, to come and work together to number one, first learn about what are the challenges and then come up with tools, come up with uh, solutions and then make, it, make those available to the, uh, uh, to the, to the world. Uh, uh, that I think is, uh, is a, in my opinion, is that in a, a, a water is one of the three major focus areas for the innovation campus. So food, fuel, and water. And, and there are, we have some examples of that. I think clearly in plant sciences, uh, we have in the past uh, come up with the technologies that have been commercialized. But I think in water, water efficiency, and, and, and other areas that we can come up. Water optimizer, I don't know if you are familiar with that. That particular uh, uh, product came out of research that was supported by the university that is being made, made available to others. Um, and, and, and we would be very uh, uh, thrilled to learn about what ideas that you have, both the problems and solutions. And, and from the University of Nebraska side, uh, Dan Duncan sitting, uh, wave Dan. He's the executive director of the Nebraska Innovation Campus. Ryan Anderson is the director of industry relations. Ryan, wave hand. Is, uh, and our Dave Con Conrad, uh, a New Tech Ventures executive director is here. But these three gentlemen work together and give them a call. And if they are not available, give uh, myself a call. If none of us respond, give our Chancellor Harvey Perlman a call, and uh, we really want to learn from you is that what are your ideas and let's work together and, and both conduct basic research, applied research, but then take that research and, and, and come up with solutions to, uh, to water and for food issues. Thanks so much, Prem. And that uh, brings to a close the questions that I had uh, to the panelists, um, but I'm sure that Many of you here in the audience uh, have many, many questions of your own. Um, we have um, just over 10 minutes uh, for some interaction with the panel. Um, so let me ask if uh, who would like to ask any of our panelists. Uh, and there's this gentleman on the right sitting right next to the microphone. You, could you introduce yourself too, please? Yes, I'm Michael Daugert from Netafim. We are an irrigation company. Uh, I, uh, first of all, I want to say that I think that a big challenge for this group is to actually add diversity and, and to add different viewpoints. And, you know, Ken, you made this great statement about, you know, is irrigated agriculture sustainable? By the way, I make my life with irrigated agriculture. But, but the fact is, is that there are a lot of people who would disagree with you. And, and I think you, you need, you know, the idea that we have to educate them might not be the right, you know, there needs to be a dialogue, because they might be correct, by the way. Same thing, a number of sponsors would really disagree with the fact that we should eat less. <laughs> they, they actually make their money by people eating more. So this is a question I'm very much afraid to ask, honestly, but I have to ask this. And, but I really understand I'm very scared to ask this question. And that is, why do we accept 9 billion people? In other words, if we want to keep beautiful mountains, beautiful rivers, and water, why is 9? And by the way, I understand that 9 billion people is why water for food is even a question. But why is that an acceptable number? 
And I understand it, you don't need to answer that. It's philosophical, but I still think it should be asked. Thank you very much. Uh, let me, I am sure that all of us would like to say something on that topic, um, but let me ask if any of the five would uh, like to comment. I'll comment. It's because it's politically incorrect to talk about it. And um, the only way, because population control got a very bad name in the 1970s and 1980s throughout the de developing world. And, and rightly so, some countries actually had forced population control. So that in the international arena right now, the, the mantra is that population control occurs when societies, countries create enough wealth that Low income, the lowest income among the, their population can afford to send their, their young girls to school because the correlation is strongest between population growth rate and the education of women. And so that has become the way in which the international community spends its energy thinking about the issue of population control. And if you have other ideas, we'd like to hear them. I think I think the I, I think the estimate of 9.2 has very uh, op, depending but fairly optimistic assumptions about the creation of wealth that because the population is is projected to plateau at 9.2 uh, billion the problem is probably to the upside if that for instance if Europe falls apart tomorrow the rate of economic growth will stop and, and, and be much slower than the current models, and our population will rise to 10, 11 billion. Well, Let me ask uh, Simi, I think you wanted to come in, and then I know that uh, Harvey and others are uh, waiting there to ask questions. I'd, I'd like to say that, yes, there has been a lot of discussion on population control. And um, as, as a feminist and a part of the women's movement, I believe that's one of the basic issues that we have to solve in the developing countries. And I think once women are empowered, they no longer want to have so many children. When they want, you know, when they have equal rights, when they can have a choice between having big families and uh, going to work, when they want to be educated, all of that makes a difference. So I think this nine billion thing is not magic, it's kind of taken all of that into account. But let's turn that on its head. We are saying there are nine billion people and they're going to need this much food. Let's turn that on its head and say, well, if everybody consumed less, we will not need that much food production. So I think we have to move towards consuming less. And then the issue is who's consuming more? I mean, you may have uh, uh, you know, a few small countries with very little population, but their consumption patterns are huge, and they consume more than many countries which have many, many more millions of people. So I think that uh, needs to balance the equation. And also with climate change, we don't know what's going to happen. In, you know, in South Asia, uh, the IPCC had, pre had uh, predicted about a few years ago that in the 10-year period, there would be 50 million environmental refugees. Well, 20 million of those have already become environmental refugees. So once we factor in all that, I think it's not a very precise world. Yet there are, I, I think, cutting down on consumption, cutting down on population, we've got to work on both of them at the same time. Thanks, Simi. And I think you got a bit of the dialogue that uh, you were looking for. So thank you for the question as well. Uh, Suet, yes. And then let's uh, go to uh, Chancellor Perlman. Michael, I think that's a great question. But as engineers, I think we like 
the benchmarks or the baselines. Um, you know, whether we accept it or not, I think it's always a good idea to design or plan for the worst case scenario. Uh, so if you know where we are heading with the population, I think we can design and manage and, and plan our resources and, and our activities, research, education, in increasing productivity for that, to meet that baseline. So in that case, I think it's useful to have a number at least. Exactly, and I think that's why that, that figure is, uh, is on the table. Chancellor Perlman. Yes, Harvey Perlman, the University of Nebraska. Um, I'm a little anxious to say something here with a little anxiety because I'm neither a scientist um, or a food or water expert. I'm a lawyer. Uh, but it does, as I've sat here for uh, most of the three days, a couple of things occur to me that, that probably should be incorporated in our conversations because I do think uh, while universities stand for the proposition that science can inform uh, the solution to these issues, I don't think it's the only answer. And I think there are a couple things that occurred to me over the course of these days that are not being taken into account that run counter to some of what the solutions are that are being proposed. Uh, I don't think we've been particularly successful at uh, encouraging people to eat less, but maybe we'll work that out. Uh, because of the health consequences, not because of some abstract idea about water. But I don't think you will be able to stop the ambition of diet. That is, I don't think you will be able to say that people don't want to eat up the food chain. And there's been a lot of conversation about, well, animal uh, food takes, consumes more water, or it's more water intensive than, than grains or other kinds of things. I don't think you can stop that uh, thing, and I, I think one ought to relax the assumption that you can. Um, you can force it by price, but the consequences of that would be to increase the gap between haves and haves not and decrease the stability of any society that tried to do it. So I think there's a real realism there that I think has to take it, be taken into account. The second thing, and this is kind of geopolitical, I suppose, but it might be helpful to have people talk about this, is I can't think of a leader of a country that can say, well, water efficiency, world water efficiency and food efficiency suggests that I stop trying to grow food in this sand and just import it from other places that do. There isn't a leader that politically could say that or implement a policy that did that. Uh, food security is important, and you're not going to turn over the security of your country to some other place that's going to provide you with food that you don't know how your long-term relationships are. So I do think some of these global solutions have to be evaluated in the context of the realism of the world in which we live. And that would be a hypothesis of mine, so I would ask the question, what do you think of that hypothesis? Thanks very much, uh, Harvey. And uh, let me just ask one panelist if they would like to react before we get to the next questions. Any panelist who would like to react to that uh, observation? Uh, Let's test the hypothesis by doing the research in this institution. And, and Keith, you wanted to say something too? I, I, I just, I agree. Uh, I've, I've traveled in many countries and have yet to be in one of those countries that they said we don't need to be self-sufficient. You're absolutely right, and, and I've been in some countries that 
they probably ought to be willing to import more food, but for whatever reason, uh, they still want to be self-sufficient. That's made my experience too, by the way. Uh, Victor, uh, this, let me just say this is the last question because I do have to turn over to uh, my colleague Prem Paul in a second. So, Thanks, Victor Robert. Sadras. Um, allocation of resources to research require priorities and that's probably the stage at which uh, the Institute is right now. One comment that might add to the discussion or, or guidelines is the, the issue of scales. Different technologies do have different times from in conception to maturity. A variety might take 10 years. If we think of C4 rice, it might take 40 years. So that's time scales for developing technologies. But the other question is the time scale for the food issues. We could think of 2050 as a crunch time, but food is an issue here and now. So we might need to think of the two scales and say we are concerned with 2050, so we, are, we can afford allocate resources to C4 rice because that would match the problem with the solution. But if the, the crunch time is 2030, then going for C4 rice is an expensive extraction. So getting the two time scales and, and sort of waiting where are we targeting our, our concerns? Is it 2020, 2030, 2040? And, and um, allocate resources using that as a complement to other criteria. That's a comment. Thank you very much, Victor. And I should say, um, my, on, on my side, that was great strategic planning advice. Um, I think thinking about those issues of timescale as one uh, develops a strategy for our institute, I think is extremely helpful to me personally. I'm not sure if others on the panel would like to comment before I ask uh, Prem to uh, come on board. Let me then uh, just, I uh, hope you will all join me in thanking our panelists. That was a great way to end. Um, I think I'll ask you to remain in your places um, and I'll invite uh, Prem uh, to make some uh, final comments. Prem. Thank you, Roberto. I, I got rid of my microphone, so. Well, thank you very much for sticking around and thanks for all your support. So I thought, uh, can I give you a little bit my comments uh, about the Institute, uh, how it uh, came about and uh, gives me an opportunity to thank a uh, few people who worked uh, behind scenes uh, tirelessly. Uh, the Doherty Water for Food Institute, as we know it, it began uh, nearly five years ago. Uh, President Milken called and he said, uh, I'm hosting a breakfast for uh, uh, Mr. Mohns Bai, uh, chairman of uh, Belmont uh, Industries. And uh, it was, so he, 
was pretty proud and excited and said, you know, we've got a lot of great things going on at the University of Nebraska Lincoln in, on water, 100 plus faculty members. Uh, and so uh, put together uh, a number of presentations by our faculty colleagues, a uh, number of you are in this room. So we had uh, this uh, uh, sh show and tell uh, for Mr. Bai and Mr. Bob Meany for Belmont. And it turned out at the end of the breakfast meeting, uh, uh, they, they challenged us, asked a lot of questions which uh, did not, I wasn't able to answer. Uh, and so they, they challenged us that we really need to think big because of the importance of water to Nebraska, importance of water uh, to the world, and so uh, um, uh, Bob Meany and I uh, uh, had the honor uh, of working together, honor for me to work with him, and we got a small group of faculty members and uh, appreciate uh, those of you who are involved. And we had a number of meetings, uh, uh, and, and every time we went back uh, to President Milken and Chancellor Perlman, uh, they asked more questions. Um, uh, so pretty soon it became uh, clear that we needed to do more thinking. Um, we needed to get advice. So we proposed that we hold a, an international conference and bring in experts from around the world and let them uh, uh, share with us their advice and also engage uh, Nebraska community and our faculty at large and, and learn from them, okay, your, uh, their, get their counsel and candid uh, comments and say, what do we need to do in this particular area? Uh, actually, uh, uh, Simi Kamal uh, was one of the panelists, uh, plenary lecturers. Jeff uh, Rakes and Gates Foundation uh, gave us their name. So with the, uh, uh, the report that, that came out of that, that conference, uh, really kind of set the stage for the Water for Food Institute. A founding gift from the Robert B. Doherty Charitable Foundation uh, that made it possible to establish uh, Doherty Water for Food Institute. And I think the clearly uh, uh, the conference, the initial conference was so successful that we, based on the feedback from you all, that we thought that we, we continue uh, these conferences. And I would say that annual, uh, these conferences uh, have been uh, an early success of the Institute. So last year, uh, uh, Ronnie Green joined as the Vice Chancellor of the Institute of Ag Natural Resources. And so he joined uh, uh, the uh, leadership uh, working group. So uh, Ronnie has been great uh, working with you in developing this Institute and taking it to another level. So thanks for uh, your collaboration. And uh, now, of course, uh, we're pleased that uh, uh, Dr. Roberto Lenton uh, joined us as the founding executive director uh, in February to provide leadership and to reach the lofty goals we've set for the Doherty Institute. Uh, Roberto, we found out through the interview, and since then he's proven that he's an experienced leader, and I know the Institute and its global conference are in good hands. Actually, once we hired Roberto, we heard, we got emails, phone calls, communications from all over the world that uh, 
what a great choice, and he, every, he, everybody seemed like in the water world knows Roberto. Uh, personally, it's been, uh, in a, been a great uh, honor uh, for our office to be engaged uh, in uh, shaping and building these conferences and the institute. Um, uh, there are a lot of people that play uh, uh, important roles, uh, unsung heroes, heroines, uh, uh, and, and I would just like to, both the conferences and institute, uh, uh, and, and they really come from uh, throughout the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. So I, if, if uh, my colleagues are listening and make sure that uh, they're here, so I'd like to uh, ask uh, the videographers and producers from INR, EdMedia, University Communications, Information Technologies, who really been working very, very hard. Uh, sound people, uh, Office of Research and uh, Economic Development, uh, all the colleagues who worked the registration desk, coordinated travel and speaker logistics, organized hotel vendor arrangements, media relations, publications, website, you name it, arrangements for speakers, sponsors, dealt with really many, many, many details that are uh, unimaginable to, to at least to me. So if you would please stand, uh, all the different groups, uh, uh, please stand, don't be shy. This is not the time to be shy. Come on, come on Mike and Monica, they're all that. Okay. Thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart, and I, I know that uh, you worked very, very hard, so appreciate uh, all that you've done. I did tell them that, uh, you know, that we've been doing this for four years, and this is the last year we're gonna do this and pass the baton, so uh, they were thrilled. Not that they didn't enjoy it. They really very much enjoyed it. Um, uh, at this point, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, you know, I think the institute is in great uh, hands, uh, uh, and, and I think Dr. Lenton, I'm really very pleased that uh, uh, you are on board, and I would like to, uh, I thought, how could we really make this uh, publicly so everybody remembers that, so next year uh, <laughs> our staff understand that uh, um, they're not going to be organizing it, and Roberto knows that uh, what he's going to be doing next year. So we created this gavel. So which that the reason I've been using that gavel probably is because I wanted to make sure you had already seen it. And this gavel is a way to pass the responsibility of the conference organization to my great colleague uh, and friend, uh, Dr. Roberto Lenton. Well, thank you so much, uh, Prem, um, and I'm very proud to have this uh, gavel in my hand. Uh, it's, uh, as everybody knows here, you have set, set, set such a high standard for this conference that it's going to be an absolutely impossible act to follow. Um, but um, I'm really, truly grateful to you, Prem, um, for 
your leadership in bringing the conference to where it is today. There's just no question that it's your energy, your driving that has brought us to where we are today. Um, and also no question that it's your passion, your energy, your creativity that led to the establishment of this institute um, and to all of us being here. So let me uh, thank you. Uh, I accept this, uh, this gavel with uh, a lot of humility. Um, it's it's, uh, it's going to be a privilege to take this forward and try to follow in your footsteps. Um, that said, I have some very uh, pedestrian final uh, announcements uh, to make. Um, I need to uh, thank formally uh, all the speakers, all the attendees, and all the sponsors. Um, I will not name everyone uh, who participated as speakers, but let me particularly emphasize uh, the participants uh, who are in this room today. You have really been uh, enormously uh, contributing to the conference throughout. It's through your questions and through your uh, presence here that you have made the conference come alive. So thank you so much uh, for being a part of this, of this uh, three days of the conference. Um, let me invite everyone to attend the Nebraska Capital Tour of, uh, of Water and Agriculture-Related Art. Those who are interested uh, can meet in the lobby um, at 3.15. Uh, let me also say that we will be in touch with all of you um, in the next several months about the proceedings of this conference and also about our thoughts about next year's conference. And of course, any ideas that you might have uh, about uh, this conference, about next year's conference, uh, please do uh, feel free to share um, them uh, with us. Um, so with all of that, let me uh, then formally bring this conference to a close.